Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, we come now to your scriptures, and as our kids take off, we pray your blessing over them as they go and learn and grow. Our hearts long for so many different things right now. If we're parents, we're watching our kids go and be cared for by others, and our hearts long for them to encounter Christ. And so we ask for that. If we don't have kids, if we're here and our kids are grown or we're not a part of a family that has kids yet, we are praying that we would be able to hear your word clearly. And so in these just few moments of silence, would you clear our hearts, would you clear my heart to be receptive? Hear us as we pray silently and ask for you to speak to us. Jesus, it is by your grace that we come to your word and it is by your grace that we can be changed. So bring your word to bear through your broken servant. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is great to be back with all of you. Many of you know we welcomed a new member into our family a couple of weeks ago, and so I've had the last couple of weeks to kind of sort of be off and just be with my family. So I'm grateful for that gift. I'm also grateful to be back with all of you. I want to start by asking a question. How many of you grew up in or near a desert of some kind? Eastern Washington, Central Washington, okay. Anybody go to Vegas recently? It's okay, you can admit it, it's church, it's fine. Uh, How many people have gone to Utah, to Moab, to Arches, to kind of that part of the world? Okay, great place, love that. How many of you know that there's a desert in Colorado? I lived on the western slope of Colorado for four years, and I had no idea there was a desert there, like 4,600 feet, dry as a bone, like there you go. How many of you have been to the Holy Land, to the desert that is the backdrop for most of the scriptures. Yep. Okay. I ask all of that because the setting for both this week and next week involves a lot of talk about sheep and shepherds. Unless you grew up around a community that really valued that, that, that's pretty foreign. Like, I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. I don't know a whole lot about sheep or shepherds. I didn't know a lot about the desert until I lived in Colorado. And so I'm going to share, to kind of set the stage for us today, a bit about what the desert meant in the Bible, what the backdrop of the desert even means, because it's going to mean different things than what we might assume. In the desert of the Holy Land, from October until March, a good rain will suddenly make the desert bloom with a surprising number of plants, and all of these make excellent pasture for sheep. And I wouldn't believe this, except when we lived in Colorado and it started raining, these plants would just come out of the dirt. Like, where were these things, right? During the bulk of the year, the desert is totally inhospitable to life. Water is scarce, food is rare, dangers are everywhere. The western deserts of Judea have steep, eroded cliffs that sometimes present a drop of a thousand feet. Competent shepherds must have skills and tools or else their sheep will become prey to the elements, to thieves, to wild animals in the region. To lead a flock through a desolate region with bandits and hungry animals and a deadly landscape is serious business. Now, to provide protection at night in this environment, sheep were often herded into walled enclosures that either backed up against a cliff face or at the end of a canyon, like a box canyon. Such enclosures, which are still used to this day by Palestinian shepherds in the Judean desert, had waist-high stone walls topped with thorny branches. Such a pen was entirely for the safety so that the sheep would not become prey to wild animals. One small doorway or opening in the wall served as the only entrance and exit. 
the shepherd would either close this area with dry thorn bushes or would put himself as the sentry in the opening. A desert is a desperate place. In a desperate place, vulnerable lives are protected by a person. In a desperate place, vulnerable lives are protected by a person. Now, next week, I'll make the case that we all live vulnerable and desperate lives. But this week, I want us to recognize that the good shepherd who keeps the sheep in the pen is not interested in making sure that the pen is the happiest place on earth. The good shepherd cares about the door. The good shepherd stands ready to serve. The good shepherd, our Lord Jesus, is who we are talking about today. And this is where we'll get into our thesis. If you like thesis statements, I'll give this one to you at the beginning. A person makes entry possible. A person makes entry possible. Today's sermon is the next step in our series about the I am statements of Jesus. These are all these incredible statements he makes about himself, these declarations that really at the end of the day are about who he is, fully God, fully human, totally unlike anybody who has ever walked the face of the earth. Now, if you have any kind of church background, you may listen to today's text about the gate and the sheepfold, and it may not churn up the best memories for you. And we'll get into why that may be in a moment. But this text very much is about salvation. It very much is about Jesus being who he says he is, the way and the truth and the life. That is the core of it. But in my studies this week, I found a different angle on the text that I think is very much related to salvation, but deals with this, deals with the people of God gathered together in the place that God wants us to be. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. A person makes entry possible. I want to invite you to just adjust your lenses with me for just a moment at a familiar text and challenge those of us who call this community home to think about it in a different way as a result of this text. Now, of course, this is my first sermon since being away on leave. Um, I've definitely felt a little rusty. Uh, I wrote three different drafts of this this week, which isn't normal for me. So my outline changed. And so if you are a note taker and you're looking at the outline in your bulletin, I want to give you a change to the outline. So the first heading is eternal and abundant life. Eternal and abundant life. The second heading is God's family. God's family. And the third heading is God's mission. So eternal and abundant life, God's family, God's mission. Let's start with that first heading. A person makes entry possible for eternal and abundant life. And this is where we're going to talk about salvation. This is where we're going to talk about eternity. Let's begin, though, by considering the audience that Jesus is addressing. In this section of John, like Holly talked about last week, Jesus is talking to religious leaders. He's talking to these guys, the Pharisees. And in a way, they were kind of the senior pastors of their day. They were the ones that people in the community looked to for guidance in things religious and things ceremonial. And most of these guys actually practiced what they preached, as far as we can tell, although what they preached was really messed up. Keep the law, don't get into trouble, and you'll have your ticket punched to get into heaven. I grew up with that being my understanding of the gospel, and many of you did too. And like Holly talked about last week, these leaders created some pretty beautiful things related to that system of belief. The Jewish festivals that are kind of the context for this passage taking place. Festivals involving fire and light and water, which I'm sure were beautiful, but I wonder if they were life-giving. Ultimately, the story told by the Pharisees is one of unreconstructed leadership. 
unreconstructed leadership. What I mean by that is leadership that comes through the venue of a group of people stubbornly holding on to their ceremonial and cultural pathways to God. When most people outside the church think about faith, that's what they're thinking about. Cultural and ceremonial pathways to some sort of nebulous divine figure. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, like, how can you blame them? That's what it looks like, I think, for a lot of people who stand outside of the faith. A lot of our neighbors, a lot of our coworkers, a lot of people that I know my heart, and I know many of your hearts, long for those folks to be a part of a community like this. I grew up in a big church in the South, and that's what I believe, too. Keep the rules, stay out of trouble, don't cuss too much in front of your parents. That's not the gospel. The gospel is actually in our text, and I want to zero in on that right now if you'll look at John 10.10 with me. We're starting with our last, pa- our last verse from this passage because it really helps form all the operating principles we're going to need working through this. Now, I'm going to share from the message translation. So listen to this. A thief is only there to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. More and better life than they ever dreamed of. We see the gospel in the contrast. The contrast is between a thief and a shepherd. In Jesus' day, we talked about all the work that the shepherds had to do to keep sheep safe. Why did they do that? Because sheep are one of the most valuable commodities in this day and age. Sheep, ironically, were the most vulnerable and the most valuable of all the livestock. They were vulnerable because they lacked natural defenses like claws or speed, which which meant they were really rotten at problem solving. Like if you're a sheep and some aggressive thing comes after you, you go, oh, I'll fight this. No, I can't fight this thing. Oh, I'll run. Uh, I can't run. I guess I'm going to get eaten. They were valuable because everything about the sheep was useful. Think about it. The wool, the meat, the skin would have been used for carrying different kinds of liquids. Everything about that sheep was valuable. So it was very high on the list of things to steal, to disrupt, to distract the shepherd. A thief, or rather the thief, the enemy, wants nothing good for the sheep. The thief only desires to steal and kill and destroy. All the thief wants is destruction. And playing by the Pharisees' rules, being good little boys and good little girls, was a ploy of the enemy to get people off the scent of Jesus because of our thesis, because a person is how we gain entry. Let me put this a different way. If we believe that we are saved by the rules, like what the Pharisees taught, then why should we put energy into a relationship? Why should we put energy into a relationship, especially when it might change us? A person makes entry possible. Not good behavior, not moral uprightness. A person, a living person, who, as we read about in Mark's gospel, carries a quality that I need more of in my life. I don't know about you. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Mark 6, verse 34. This is the shepherd. This is the one who is the gate. He says this about himself, or Mark says this about Jesus. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them. He had compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. He had compassion. I found it very helpful this week to think of our approach to Easter, our journey through Lent, when we come upon this thing, the passion of the Christ heading into the resurrection, the passion is informed by Jesus' compassion. 
It is shaped by that at its very core. Jesus elaborated on this reality in John 14, 6, when he was giving his disciples some final instructions, kind of a last lecture. You can turn there with me if you like, John 14, 6. This will be familiar to many of us. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some of us have heard that verse used in some pretty negative ways to beat people up, to draw lines that human beings actually aren't qualified to draw. It is above our pay grade to look at somebody and say, I think you're out or I think you're in. That is the responsibility of Jesus Christ because he is who he says he is, because he is the gate. You and I do not get to make the ultimate call about someone else's salvation. Frankly, I don't want that power. I would be terrified to have that power. When we try to do this, we miss the big point of today's sermon entirely. It is a person, the most compassionate person that the world has ever seen and will ever see, who makes real life possible. A person is our pathway. Not keeping the rules, not what the Pharisees proclaimed. Now someone might be thinking, okay, I'd, give me a little bit more. I need a little bit more proof here. If we skip ahead to Good Friday for just a moment, we're going to hear some proof. When Jesus was nailed to a cross and left to die on a hillside in agony and in isolation, he actually had two people next to him. And there's a powerful moment in the midst of that agony. And doesn't that happen? That there are some pretty powerful moments with God in the midst of some pretty agonizing things. Jesus, through his pain, hears these words coming to him from the thief next to him. Let me come with you. Let me walk through the gate with you. And Jesus grants it to him, and a person makes entry possible. Did that thief have any time at all to clean up his life, to straighten up his moral record, to change? No. He just came to the person who makes entry possible. And that's why I see things like John 14, 6 as an encouragement, as an affirmation, as a way of saying, like, I got you. This is the security, this is the place of hope and safety that Jesus Christ gives to those who follow him, who confess him, who say, I can't do it. I need you to do it. There's tremendous freedom and joy in embracing that reality, but oh my gosh, do I fight against that. I fight against that. And so that's where I think we need to make a real quick application point. And it's, it's a simple application, actually. It's quit. Quit. Quit striving. Quit trying to tunnel under the fence and get in by yourself. Quit trying to make it work. Whatever it is. To begin, we need to identify the places where we are striving, where we are not trusting in this principle that we've been talking about, that a person is our point of entry. Where are we denying that? Where are we turning our hearts away from that? Where do we try to dig underground to get what we want? I'll tell you what's been kicking me in the tail right now. Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods. I know a couple of you have read it. Oh my goodness. If you want to pick up something that will really help you get under the surface of your idols and the false things, the empty things that we chase around, maybe that's worth your time. It's incredible, and I want to encourage all of us to maybe pick it up and read it between now and Easter as a way to prepare ourselves, as a way to say, i got to quit. i got to quit my striving. And it starts with identifying what I've been striving after, whether it's career, whether it's money, whether it's approval, whether it's getting your kids to like you, whatever it may be, quit striving. 
quit and find a way to replace those idols by putting the person in the place of lordship that really needs to be there. And that's Jesus Christ. So, we know that Jesus' words in this text, that a person makes entry possible into eternity, into abundant life. We know these things are true. And now let's look at our next theme. God, a person makes entry possible into God's family. Now, where does God's family come into play? I got a little bit of help from an old friend of mine, a great theologian, a reformer, a guy named John Calvin. Calvin would agree that this passage is very much about salvation. He would not dither from that. But he also poses well an idea that really challenged me in thinking about how this passage impacts our life together as a community. Listen to this. This is from his commentary on John. Calvin writes, Let us be content with the general view that Christ likens the church to a sheepfold in which God assembles his people and then compares himself to the door since he is the only entrance to the church. I love that. That really got me thinking in a different way about this passage. Our passage is a message about salvation, but it is also a message about how to belong, how to be a part of a community, how to pursue the kind of life that is shaped and informed by resurrection, by new life, by salvation. And as sheep within the fold, mindful of the reality that many more sheep have not found their way in yet. And they're not gonna until they find the person. So let's apply this to someone I know fairly well. Some of you know that we recently welcomed a new member into our family, our new daughter, Amelia Lane. She was born on March 3rd, and by God's grace, like I mentioned earlier, I've been able to be home and get to know her a little bit. Amelia, and we've been calling her Millie, so if, when you meet her, you can call her Millie. She'll, she'll receive that. It's a name we picked because we really love what it means. Amelia comes from the word ameliorate, which means to relieve suffering, to break away from pain, and to create hope and a pathway forward into peace. No pressure on our kid. And Lane, by the way, is my mother's name. I mention her name, I mention her, of course, because I'm proud to call her her daughter, I'm proud of my wife, I'm proud of our two big kids. But if Calvin's words are correct, then my little Amelia and all of our kids and all adults and all people who come into this place have the opportunity to encounter Jesus, the one true pathway to his church. And I feel the weight of that when I think about the kids of the families in this room that I know well. I feel the weight of that as I help families get ready for things like baby dedications. We're going to have a baby dedication next week for James Birchman. And we're going to make promises together to seek James's flourishing, seek opportunities for James to meet Jesus Christ, the doorway into the church. That is what we hope for. I also mentioned my daughter, Amelia, because naming is a really big deal. You know, as parents, sometimes we wrestle with our kids' names. Sometimes it's very arbitrary. In the culture of Jesus' day, names were connected to the two things that traditional cultures still value more than anything else. Traditional non-Western cultures value honor and they value family. And so a name was a way for you to enter into that responsibility, knowing your place in your family, your community, and then serving others selflessly out of that knowledge of what you've been called to. When God gave names in the Bible, he filled them with meaning. He just crammed them full of meaning. He called Abraham to be the father of many nations. And that was his name that he gave to him after he changed it from Abram. He called Simon, instead of being Simon, Peter, because he knew that Peter would be the rock upon which the church would be built. 
These are family names, giving with intentionality and meaning and purpose. And in this case, these are names that give a destiny. So we know that names are important to Jesus as well because he mentions it in the text. Turn with me to John 10. This is a fascinating part of our passage. John 10, verse 3. Jesus said, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus' sheep have names. That is a significant point because to name something means you value it. To name something means you value it. God naming Abraham and Peter so that many others, and what he did for so many others, meant that he gave a huge purpose to each of them. And he has a huge purpose for you because you're here. He has a huge purpose for your life and for my life, regardless of the name that's been given to you. There is a name that God has given to you that is your calling, and it is there. In our passage today, Jesus is telling his audience that when you embrace him, when you belong to his family, you have a name. You are known. You are cared for. You are not a random act of genetics. And this is why we exist as a church, to help people know the name given to them by God, and that is beloved, that is precious, that is a prize beyond value. We are here to be known, to know one another, to care for one another, to receive one another with grace, and we are here to position ourselves as best we possibly can to exist for those who aren't here yet, to be a place that from the get-go, when someone walks in, that they feel welcomed. And to be a place like we're doing through Serve Day that exists in such a way that when we go into our community, it's not to suck people into something that we're selling. It's to be a place that expresses the grace of Jesus Christ in ways that make sense to our neighbors. Now, this is a vision for the church that is only vital when people step into it. A vision that nobody wants to step into is no vision at all. And it is hard to achieve this vision. It is hard to develop real friendships when our culture is so addicted to speed and instant gratification. It is hard to care for others when we feel so tapped out by our work, by our studies, by kids, by traffic. I get it. I live here too. But we can't keep going on the way that we are. In the last couple of weeks, I've had several conversations with men who are going through a really rough season in their marriages. And in each of these conversations, I've asked these men, who's with you? Who's, who's, who's in your corner? Who's your crew? Who's walking with you? Who's helping you get through this? And you know what their answer is? Nobody. Nobody. It's heartbreaking. And it is among the most insidious and dangerous diseases modern humanity faces today. For men, for women, for all of us. It's isolation, it's fear, it's shame. This is a place where we can change that. We can change the story. We can change the story for those men. We can change the story for the people in our lives that we love so much and who are hurting so painfully. And we don't exist to fix people. <laughs> we exist to be a place to point people toward the person who is the entry point, the pathway to healing and to restoration and reconciliation. A person is our entry into God's family. You are the person who could be an entry point for someone to come into this family. 
You are the person who can be an entry point for someone to come into this family and meet the entry point, Jesus Christ. And I would ask for you to do that in the weeks to come. Not just because we're coming up to Easter, but I would ask as well, if you've got friends who are going through seasons like those men I was talking about, are you with them? Are you giving sacrificially of your time for them? I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I'm trying to give us an opportunity to catch this vision and to do something about the way our culture is headed and to be a presence of healing and hope. Maybe it's time that you went on something like Men's Malibu where a bunch of men get together at a camp in Canada and we experience the joy and grace of Jesus Christ together. Maybe you need to go on the women's retreat with your girlfriends and find a place of rest and find a place to let your guard down and share your life together. Maybe this weekend to remember that's happening in Bellevue for married couples, maybe that's where you need to be. Maybe what God is calling us to step into involves more people than we walked in here thinking about. So, God's family, we have a mission, and I want to talk about that mission before we wrap up. Jesus is the gate. A person makes entry possible into heaven, into abundant life now, into having a crew with you when you're going through hell. And we as a family exist for the sake of each other and for the sake of people who aren't here yet. I want to talk about what we do here and then why what we do here matters. A couple of months ago, I was at a retreat and the speaker was talking about worship. And he likened the rhythm of worship and service each Sunday to the heartbeat of a body, to the movement of blood through the body. When blood is doing what it's supposed to do, it provides oxygen to our muscles and our tissue so that the whole body can thrive. And that takes a lot out of the blood. And so it returns to the heart to be reoxygenated and then sent back out again. Worship and community is the heart contracting. And then our weeks of being sent out into our jobs, into our places of work, schools, wherever we go, that is what we are here for. We come to worship, we come to sing, we're filled, and then we depart to give what has been filled into us to others. So you're part of a heartbeat right now. I'm part of a heartbeat right now. That's pretty cool. And I mention this because this is the image that comes into my mind when I read John 10, 9. Jesus says this. Sorry, my fingers aren't working right now. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Come in and go out and find pasture. That is the heartbeat. That's the image I get, is a heart beating and contracting. Jesus drew his disciples to him. He brought them in for three years, and then he sent them out. And they drew people into discipleship to Jesus Christ, and they sent them out. The longevity and vitality of Jesus' church has not been through seminary-educated clergy people. It has been through the heartbeat of God in real people's lives, doing real things in the world to be drawn into Christ and then sent out, drawn in and sent out. Think about what happens when you walked in here this morning. Just after you parked your car, you walked through the rain, you came in and you were welcomed by somebody. Somebody said hi to you. And I was thinking about this this week. This may be one of the only places that you and I come to on a, on a weekly basis where someone says hello to you and they don't want you to buy anything. They don't need you to do nothing. They're just really glad you're here. This is a non-transactional, non-professional, hi, how's it going? 
We're really glad you're here this morning. Our greeters are so critical to this because a warm hand needs to be extended for mission to take place. If we're going to be a church that exists for the sake of others, it starts with a handshake. It starts with being a living, breathing human being in the presence of another human being. And as we aim our sights at Easter coming up, I want to offer a couple of encouragements about this importance of greeting and the importance of so many other ministries here. Back at that table where those beautiful plants are is an opportunity to sign up and serve on Easter. And I want you to consider signing up and serving as an usher, as a greeter, as all these different roles, not because we like busy people here at Bethany, but because our mission is to go in and be sent out. And when people come in, we want them to be received so well And we want them to be sent out knowing that they were loved and cared for and that they were treated with the greatest respect. So please consider signing up to help on Easter and consider signing up in such a way that you make this monthly service a part of your life, that you're able to serve once a month and commit to being a part of a team. Before the greeters are in place, this space has to be changed quite a bit, and some of you have seen that. We want this space to continue to be as warm and as welcoming as it is right now because when people walk in, we want them to feel like they belong, like there is a place for them here. Please consider helping us, helping be a part of the team that does this, that makes this space what it is every week. You can do that by signing up for the setup team. You can serve kids because when families come, they are looking for people to love and care for their kids. And Ken is building a great ministry around that, but I want to encourage more people to jump in because when families come, when parents come, they just want to know that their kid's going to be cared for. They just want to know their kids are going to be safe and loved, and we can do that. And many of you already do, and I just want to say thank you. But even if you, especially if you don't have kids, I hope you'll consider jumping in to that ministry. And for those of you who already serve, thank you. And would you consider inviting someone to join you in your service? Have a buddy, have someone ride along with you as you do what you do. If you have administrative gifts, we could really use your help with some scheduling stuff. Please come talk to me or Allie about that. All this is for the purpose of coming in and going out, coming in and going out. This heartbeat that is here in the text, that is here in our life together as a church, it doesn't just happen. It happens because people jump in and take ownership of it. And that's where we find pasture. I want to end by looking at this last clause in the text in verse 9. The text says, come in and go out and find pasture. Three clauses connected by two ands. Come in, go out, find pasture. Notice what the text does not say. The text does not say, come in and go out, then find pasture. It is not causal. It is not a cause and effect. Why is that the case? Because when the Bible talks about pasture, the Bible is not talking about more work. It's not talking about merely keeping livestock alive. It's not talking about the rainy season. When the Bible talks about pasture, it is talking about the joy of discovering what Jesus has already done for us, what he has already invited us to step into. The psalmist uh, wrote these words about pasture. In Psalm 79, Then we, your people, the flock of your pasture, We'll give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. The flock of your pasture. Why do God's people give thanks to him forever? Because he has freed us. 
He has freed us from empty ritual. He has freed us because he has extended a warm handshake to us in Jesus Christ. And he has set up a place for us to live and have fellowship with one another. And now is the time for us to lean into that reality. Stop by that table. Sign up. Easter is three weeks away. I'd love for everybody here to have the chance to worship at one service and to serve at another. I hope you'll take me up on that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Easter last year was a blast. And it's going to be great this year. And I know we're going to get there through all of us jumping in together. A person makes entry possible. And I would add as we close, a person makes joyous entry possible. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And so as we prepare our hearts to respond through singing, we ask that you would speak to us in the corners of our hearts where we need to be moved. Each of us has places that we're holding on to. Each of us has places where we desire your shaping or where we need it and we don't even know it. So as we rise, as we unite our voices together, lead us, shape us. Thank you for being our gate. And may our hearts long for others to come through that gate and to find pasture and abundant life with you. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue in our worship.